Hey, oboists, have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes Effleuré of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a credit of $100 towards shipping, mention Doubleree Dish when you call or email Shauna. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago selection, please visit www.obochicago.com. You know how we're always in the market for good quality handmade reeds? Well, MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reeds where you can try reeds from various makers and select the one that is best for you. Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code DOUBLEREADDISH, three separate words, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Uh, I got to play a concerto with the symphonic winds at USM. Uh, it was El Bosque Magico by Ferrer Ferran. And it was so much fun. And I actually wasn't even that nervous. You know, in the moment, I was able to just let go and kind of let the spirit take me. That's kind of what it felt like. It was just like, okay, well, I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to overthink. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And uh, it was really a lot of fun. And I was able to do that uh, a couple nights ago as well on my colleague and friend of the podcast, Kim Woolley's recital. We played um, the Lallier trio for oboe, bassoon, and piano together. And I had a very similar experience doing that. And it felt awesome. It was so much fun to play like that, where you're just like, well, this is going to be really fun. And then you let go and just play how you want to play. Yeah, definitely. That sounds awesome. And what about you? I heard you had a similar experience recently. Yeah, this last week was very good for me, which I'm happy because I know in the last episode, I was like, this week has been horrible. (laughs) But on this past Wednesday, I got up very early and drove to Normal, Illinois to spend the day with the business studio of Illinois State University and was hosted by Michael Dicker, um, who's had just amazing life experiences and was telling me all these great stories about playing in Europe and living abroad. And I just had a wonderful time visiting with him throughout the day, taught some classes, master classes, and gave a recital I was really happy with. So yeah, it was a really positive experience, but I was wearing heels the whole day And I wear heels all the time and I don't wear excessively high heels. I tend to be pretty smart about my footwear, but I also realized that I tend to sit in an average day a lot more than I did on that day, including like we went to lunch and I walked to lunch in my shoes. I just didn't even think to bring a 
pair to change into for transit, which mm-hmm. I usually do. And by the end of the day, I was like, oh my gosh, I feel like really hurt. And the next day, of course, <laughs> I was wearing normal shoes on the drive home and my feet were like throbbing, like heartbeat no. in the feet. <laughs> oh no. It was really not good. And I have been running of course and I'm on this streak where I haven't missed any days and so now it's about keeping the streak and so I was like went out for my run the next morning and I was like ouch 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 like every step was just this (laughs) painful pummeling oh so gingerly Well, here's the worst thing is, of course, Missouri is very hot in the summer. And so I've been like, oh, I really want it to get cold. So I have some comfortable running. And today it was like 30 degrees all morning. And I went out and I was like, (laughs) like teeth chattering, (laughs) like needing gloves and stuff. And so I think, unfortunately... I'm going to have to start working out at the university rec center, which is free for us. So why would I pay for a gym if I have free access? But here's the thing is you're going to run into students and like sweating and running plus students and hi, Dr. Wilson. Like, uh, please. Dr. Wilson, can I talk to you about my midterm grade? (laughs) And you're like, (laughs) (laughs) maybe I can get a shirt that just says, don't talk to me. Or one that says, like, these are not office hours. Like, (laughs) (laughs) oh, it should say email me. (laughs) New merch idea. (laughs) So, we love hearing from listeners. And uh, recently, I was able to get this really amazing message from my friend and podcast listener and supporter, Carly Gomez, bassoonist. And she was like, girl, I was listening to the episode where you guys were talking about how the bassoonists cannot stay on the stage. They keep falling off the stage. And then she sends me this uh, message that she gave me permission to read on the podcast. So I'm just going to go ahead and read it. Okay. Okay. Here's the timeline of my falls last week. Uh, Concert one. Before the concert, I was trying to climb onto the riser and fell as in my whole body was on the floor on stage. Number two, intermission of the same concert. I was trying to get back on the riser again and fell, but grabbed the contrabassoonist in the process and I broke his reed. (laughs) And number three, the following week in rehearsal, I was trying to adjust my stand on the riser below me and was trying to reach my, my foot to the base to raise it up, but it was farther than expected and I fell completely to the ground. Oh my gosh. Later, as I was browsing the official Instagram of our orchestra, I saw the beautiful moment captured unknowingly in the background of one of our publicity videos. And then she says at the end, me and the bassoon are okay. Of course, that was my first question. As you were reading this, I was just like, where was her instrument? Was it okay? Oh my gosh. (laughs) I would have 
died. And that, and that happened when I was there. I think physical comedy is so funny. And so anytime somebody falls in my vicinity, my first reaction is to laugh. And my second reaction is to ask if they're okay. I bet that contrabassoonist was not laughing though. I <laughs> <laughs> Bassoonists, stay in your chairs. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like there might be a questionable riser situation going on here, though. Like, what is it about these risers? <laughs> Maybe you guys are just so, like, top-heavy from the bassoon that your center of balance is off, and you just the bassoon is just tilting you over, and then you just fall to the ground. Well, I had a kind of... Um, comparable reed breaking experience at an orchestra rehearsal recently. No. Yeah, it was actually a really excellent read. And I was a dummy and at the break did not take it off of my vocal and put it safely back in its case, which is oh what should have happened. <laughs> I left it on the end of my vocal <laughs> and then someone was talking to me and, um, talking about um, how hot it was at the front of the stage. And uh, I was like, oh, really? It feels okay back here. And she goes, yeah, touch my face, which I know that sounds really random and weird, but I was like, okay. And uh, (laughs) reached out and hit my read. And um, it was like split down the middle over an inch. There was no saving this thing. And it was... It was just. Did you just burst into tears, like cartoon style tears, just like huge tears, just like going horizontally out of your eyes? <laughs> so, yes, always put your reeds back in the case when they are not being played, uh, which is usually something that we teach very young players, but apparently I needed to relearn. <laughs> the school of hard knocks exactly (laughs) well before we close this dish we wanted to on a little bit uh, more serious note make sure to acknowledge the recent uh, and unfortunate untimely passing of bassoonist Eric Varner uh, who was such a contributor to our field I had the pleasure of getting to know Eric uh, much better over the past year through the Meg Quigley Vivaldi competition and symposium and um, I know he has so many loved ones, friends, and colleagues in the Double Reed community who are really feeling this loss. And we just want to offer our condolences to all of you people and you're in our thoughts. And um, yeah, we're just thinking about you and, and wanted to make sure to acknowledge Eric and everything he has done in the Double Reed world. It's a huge loss. And we're sending our love to everyone who knew him and loved him. And uh He was a really important person in our community and we're all feeling it. So sending our love. No matter where you live, Double or Nothing is there for you. Dedicated to providing excellent handmade oboe and bassoon reeds to discriminating double reed players of all ages and abilities, Double or Nothing Reeds has recently expanded to sell double reed tools and supplies, gift items, and more. 
This includes knives, knife blades, thread, staples, cane, bags, and resources for students. As authorized Fox and Yamaha dealers, they offer an extensive range of oboes and bassoons for all levels. In addition, they sell quality used instruments on consignment. If you're looking for private oboe lessons but can't find anyone nearby, Double or Nothing Reads offers oboe lessons via Skype. Visit doubleornothingreads.com for good quality and affordable readmaking supplies and accessories, lessons, instruments, and much more. Whether you're an oboist or a bassoonist, everyone is on the lookout for a great reed knife. And good news, Genda Industries is making the reed knife great again with the Student Reed Knife by Genda. Genda Industries is known for its amazing quality and service in the double reed world, and in a world where the term student quality associates with cheap and disposable, Genda Industries is winning by making the best student reed knife ever. The student reed knife features a tapered handle that will fit any hand size as you grow, a high-quality stainless steel blade that won't rust, And it's actually sharpened, you guys. It's ready for use right out of the box. It's designed to be used when learning how to sharpen. And most importantly, since it's a gender reed knife, it is 100% supported by Genda. Plain and simple, the student reed knife by Genda is the knife you'll want as you start your reed making and adjusting journey. Add the code DRDGENDA, that's all capitals, no spaces, at checkout, and get 10% off any Genda reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife, sharpening book, cutting stone, or reed tool roll. Visit them now at GendaIndustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just reed knives. We are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish, Mr. Richard Kilmer, Professor of Oboe at the Eastman School of Music. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. It is my pleasure. Could we start off by having you tell us how you started your musical journey and how you began to play the oboe? Sure. It's a rather unusual path I took. Uh, When my father got out of the Army... In 1945, at the end of the Second World War, we moved to a little town, Garland, Texas, where he was actually working for a company in Dallas. But he, when we first moved there, he, we lived in Garland. And I took piano lessons, and I was in a little children's choir. And at, the, uh, at fifth grade, uh, we were given the option of playing, playing band instruments. And I chose the clarinet, and my twin brother chose the flute. And so we, the very first day, we got our instruments. We just marched up and down the street, Clinton Avenue, playing our instruments. We didn't know any better. We just played. We didn't know we couldn't play yet. So we just played. And then during that time we were there, it was uh, we were in El- we were in um, Garland for five years. And during that time, in the band. Uh, I saw the oboe sitting on in the instrument room, and I asked my teacher, Mr. Bolin, if I could look at it and play it. So I, we took it out, and it had one reed in it that was lipstick-laden lipstick eh. and gross, but Ew. I wanted to try it. So I played it, <laughs> and I just sat right down and played it in the in the band. I didn't learn how. I just played it. So that's kind of my whole history is that I just play the instrument. So I I took it home, and my mother had just given birth to my brother, John, 
and she said, get that thing out of the house. It must have been really horrendous. So I did. I, I took it back, and that was the end of that. Well, we then moved to El Paso, and by this time I was in the, I think, seventh or eighth grade, and I started playing clarinet in the band, and the band director was actually a cellist in the El Paso Symphony, and he asked uh, both my brother and I to play cello in the orchestra, so my brother played flute in the band, and I played clarinet in the band, and then we both played cello. And then he said, would you like, because I was in the third clarinet section, he said, are you interested in the oboe? I understand you had tried it once. I said, oh, I'd love to try it. So in the eighth grade, at age 14, I guess, something like that, I started playing the oboe, and he helped me. And then my band director helped me, my uh, high school band director helped me, because he was the bassoonist in the El Paso Symphony, and he suggested, I think this was by the time I was about 15, he suggested I start taking lessons with Richard Henderson, who was the principal oboe in the El Paso Symphony. Uh, you may know Rebecca his Henderson? daughter. Yes, you may know uh. Becky. Yes. And so, so I went to my first lesson with him, and at the same time, he said, well, why don't you start playing with me in the El Paso Symphony, play second oboe in the orchestra? So that was very fortunate to get a job that way, just to be asked to play, and I had to play an audition for Mr. Barrera, but I played, and I was accepted in the orchestra, and I played for several years as a high school student in the El Paso Symphony. At the end of that time, I had no idea what I would do in music. I knew I was going to do something, but there were five of us kids. My mother was trying to hold it all together because my father had, uh, we had gone back into the service. That's when why I went to El Paso. He had gone back into the service and by this time had been transferred to San Antonio. And so we were all there in a little house across the street from Austin High School. And my mother was, you know, she had her hands full. So college, we, I had no idea what what I was going to do about college. I had met an oboist named William Gower at a summer music camp in, in um, Portales, New Mexico, the Sunshine Music Camp. And he called me and he said, and I had been, I'd been in the Allstate Orchestra and he had conducted and he called, uh, and, and David Robertson, who was the conductor at that time, not to be confused with this, the same name who conducted St. Louis, but David Robertson uh, passed away. He was the conductor at, at Oberlin, and he he invited me to come to Oberlin to study. And I didn't know anything about Oberlin, or and I didn't know how we could pay for it. So then Bill Gower called me and said, "Well, do you ha are you going to Oberlin?" I said, "Well, I don't think we can do that." And he said, "Well, come get on a bus, come to Greeley. You can make reads. I'll put you through school with reads. We can make reads and come to Greeley." It was called Colorado State College of Education. So I got on a bus. This was a couple of weeks after graduating from high school with $90 in my pocket. And I went to Greeley and got a degree in music education, planned to be an orchestra or band director and studied cello the whole time I was in college. And then won a job in Longmont, Colorado as the string teacher. Wow. So I was an orchestra conductor and string teacher in Longmont, Colorado. And so... So then, <laughs> this is a long story. So then, <laughs> then yeah. the first summer that I started teaching in 1960, the Blue Jean Symphony started up in Estes Park, Colorado. And I was teaching the, the strings. We were starting our, our fourth graders and strings to get ready to, so they could go into the fifth grade string program. And I got a call from 
the band director up in Estes Park High School, a friend of mine who had been in college with me, and he said, they need noble player in this Blue Jean Symphony. I said, well, I can't do that. I'm teaching. He said, oh, the rehearsals are at 10 o'clock at night. So I said, okay. So I went up there with my limb oboe and my... They started at 10 o'clock yeah, at night? it was 10 to 12 because everyone in the <laughs> orchestra had to suffer, according to Walter <laughs> Charles. You couldn't be a good musician unless you suffered. <gasps> so you had to work all day and then rehearse at night. Okay. So I went up there. I drove up from Longmont and uh, played uh, the first concert. I didn't even have a read. So I bought a reed or took a, borrowed a reed from one of the other oval players, and it was a store-bought Gower reed, and it's possible I had made that reed. But anyway, <laughs> that's all I had. And so we were doing Handel water music. And so I guess I did okay because after the concert, a lady came up to me, and she looked at me, and she said, where do you play? And I said, I don't. And she said, you should. And we became good friends. She was Kathy Paulu. She's no longer with us. But Kathy was a principal oboe in Oklahoma City and had been one of Robert Sprinkle's uh, best or finest and most important students from Eastman. So we we kept in touch, actually, through the years, where through my teaching years, because my parents moved to Oklahoma City, as my luck would have it. So I kept in touch with her. And then I went into the Army. I was still in touch with her. And then I went to Yale to study with Robert Bloom at the end of the Army. And the reason I did that is because I, my wife, uh, I had met my wife during the time I was in the Army. And when I was getting out, she said, I think you should play the oboe. I said, oh, okay, I'll play the oboe. So then I went to Yale and studied <laughs> with Bloom. During that time, Kathy kept in touch with me. And at the end of my two years, Guy Frazier Harrison, the conductor of the Oklahoma City Symphony, called me and said, uh, I'd like you to come up, come down here and be Principal Lobo in, in Oklahoma City. And it pays $4,000 a year. I said, I'll take it. And so uh, that was how I got my first job. It was because of that little solo in the water music in 1960 in the Blue Jean Symphony on a, on a limb oboe on a borrowed reed mm. heard by the right person. And because the conductor didn't want to go through the audition process, she named me her successor when she left. To, uh, she and her husband moved up to Madison, Wisconsin. And that's how my career got started. I have so many questions. <laughs> is, that a, is that crazy, though? That is fascinating. Mm -hmm. And my first question is, what do you think about the concepts of specialization versus generalization? Because now we are very highly specialized, mm -hmm. but you have done so many different things. You were a cellist, you were a strings teacher, you were a public school educator, you were in an army band, you were... I mean, it, you you kind of did everything. Well, and while I was in the army, I played baritone sax, alto sax, clarinet, bass clarinet, flute, piccolo, oboe, and English horn, and, and I used to practice French horn. And I played cello in the Air Force, Air Force Academy String Quartet. Wow. So that's why when my wife said, out of all these choices you could have, either going to Hollywood to be a doubler, going back to Longmont to teach strings, or be an oboe player, she said, I could relate to you best as an oboe player because her father at that time was manager of the Dallas Symphony. So it just, I just said, okay, that's fine. Is the oboe where you felt your voice was? Not necessarily. You know, I've thought oboe was one of the most, the more challenging because I've never had 
I've, I know my my limitations so well. Every time I look at myself in the, mor- in the morning and look at, I said, "Are you kidding?" Because <laughs> I never, I, I just used to play and I I practiced all the time, but I didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I never had a single tongue uh, worth anything because I started double tonguing right away. In, for, in fact, that first audition for Mr. Barrera, it was a scherzo for the Midsummer Night's Dream. So I just went dump, 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 and so I didn't know any better. So I've always double tongued, which is not what I teach, and I don't recommend that. But there are people like me who have to do something to overcome their deficiencies, and I feel like having met many challenges in my playing life has helped me uh, be a better teacher. Can you expand more about the idea of knowing very well what your limitations are and what your strengths are? I think that you get the feedback if you were aware. You get the feedback every single time you play because of the reaction of the people around you Mm -hmm. and the conductor. So I was always getting, from the time I was in the eighth grade, I was getting a certain positive feedback about my ability to play music instead of play the oboe. Mm-hmm. So I knew that that was something that maybe I had some kind of affinity for was music. Whether what And as it turns out, whichever instrument I was going to be playing, I still think the music was the basic thing. And to this day, it's the most important aspect of my teaching. We play music on the oboe. We do, I don't teach oboe. I teach music on the oboe because the oboe is our chosen vehicle. Mm-hmm. And so that was the part of it that I felt I could do. And I also, um, just because I just played, I think my sight reading was strong and I knew mm-hmm. that I could kind of just go into a situation and I played in dance bands and in college and you don't have a chance to practice, you just play. And so I think that those skills were developed just by the fact that I was doing it. And I didn't study the oboe like most people, you know, in a music school. Uh, it wasn't the thing. In fact, my oboe teacher um, was the, taught all the woodwinds. And the first concert I played with the quintet, the, the uh, when I got there as a student, he was playing bassoon in the quintet. The first concert we played, I played flute and I played bass or bass, uh, baritone sax, cello, bass clarinet, and oboe on the first concert. So, and I didn't, he didn't ask me if I could play them. We just did that. That's what we just did. Do you feel like your variety of experiences on different instruments and sight reading under pressure and uh, your variety of experiences in different contexts gave you confidence that you bring into your performing and teaching? Okay. It also gives me a perspective because I know what it feels like to play the instruments. And so I feel that I have uh, a better sense of not just playing the oboe or a sound. I hate that concept of, do you have a good sound? I don't Mm -hmm. buy that at all. It's, do you have a tone of voice? Mm -hmm. Are you singing an idea when you play? To me, the worst goal for an oboe player is to have a good sound. Mm -hmm. The best goal is to to have a tone of voice, have control over the instrument, which will result in a beautiful sound, if you want mm-hmm. to use that term. I'd mm-hmm. rather say a beautiful tone. Because there's there's such a wide range of acceptability in a good sound. Oh, absolutely. 
Yes. And so do we we don't judge people in their speaking voice or their singing voice? Well, it's certainly not speaking voice. We don't say, well, we don't like the way you you use your voice to speak. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to listen to you. We don't say that. We don't judge people. We accept the validity uh, of each person's voice. We accept Mm -hmm. that. I feel the same thing in the oboe. I'd love to hear fine players who have control over the instrument play with their voice, not somebody else's voice. Mm-hmm. I told somebody who was auditioning for me a couple of years ago, I said, if you come to school here, I don't want to hear your teacher's voice or your teacher's tone or your teacher's way of playing. I want to know who you are. We're, I'm going to try to uncover all, uh, all that great training you've had and find at the base of it who you are and what your voice is. When somebody is playing for you and you feel like you're hearing their teachers versus somebody who's playing for you and you feel that it's their authentic voice, is that a feeling that you get when you're listening? Is it emotional reaction? Absolutely. Mm. It's, I'm hearing um, the ideas rather than the mechanics. If I'm aware of the uh, mechanics, then I don't like it. If I'm mm-hmm. aware of the result... Uh, for instance, I have uh, some. I have a wonderful freshman class this year. I'm just ecstatic over them. Now, each one of the freshmen, when they came, to me had an authentic voice, very different from each other. In fact, not remotely similar, except in that I sat there listening to them play music instead of the oboe, and that's pretty much the way I recruit. So I was wondering if you think that the common thread between all of these people who can play with their authentic voice, do you think it's an innate sense of fearlessness and courage that they feel brave enough to do that? What's the X factor? That's a really good thought. Yeah. Because it's it's a it's a confidence, but it's not. See, what I was thinking when I was you know thinking about this interview is that I how do you choose students is what I was thinking of, and mm-hmm. it's the person who's confident but not arrogant, mm-hmm. the person who is totally open to learning, but not trying to prove how good they are, mm-hmm. and so there's a balance between singing with your true voice and showing your flaws and trying to be perfect, but not having anything to say. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really important point. There's a, there's a young person who, well, who's, who holds a very important position in this country, and people say, well, why didn't you take that person? And I said, because I, could, I didn't buy it. It seemed like it was um, typing. Mm. But there are people who type very well who get jobs. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's nothing I can do about that. That's fine. You know, that's <laughs> right. what that's that's the way it is. That's the life. That's life. But I'm not looking for the typist. On the other hand, I try to help them develop the skills necessary to control the instrument, to play the music, have the skills that they need to play the music in their own voice. But you've got to have basic skills. You've got right. to have the scales and the technical backing. But it can't be the goal. The goal is control so you can be a musician. So what are some strategies for that? Like if you have a student who you see has the potential, but they still need to get out of their own way a little bit in this regard, what are some of the strategies that you would use in teaching them? It's the, those beginning materials I use, and many people avoid the, 
the 30 studies of the Barrett. I just believe in the Barrett book. I never did it myself, and I just love it because of what we accomplished with it. We take the 30 studies, and those become music studies, not technical studies in any way. They're artistic studies. For instance, my favorite is number four because we have to release the last note of a slur with the same uh, articulation style that we're going to play the two notes which follow, which become pickups to the next uh, beat. And for instance, seems to me such a logical and simple musical idea, but people are taught. And I say, what is the purpose for that, of that? That's tonguing and slurring. I have no interest in tonguing and slurring. I only have an interest in articulating the idea. And so we use those studies and we have them play. But never, never mechanical, never mechanical. And yet it's a mechanical control. I mean, it's still... You know, it's some, it's some kind of we're doing something, you know, with our muscles to to accomplish that. But it comes from a an artistic idea. It's using the technique to serve the music. You have to. That's right. It's only the only purpose. And so then I love the around the corner concept. And I don't know how many people use that. But instead of going around the corner, just that little simple way of lifting around the corner. Mm. As soon as the students hear that, they buy that as a possibility. Mm-hmm. So now we have through those 30 studies, we have acquired possibilities for making music, possibilities for phrasing, possibilities for style. And we apply then those to the 12 studies, which I also have them transposed, mm-hmm. and then the melodies. And they'll say, well, I did the melodies in high school. I said, well, you're, you haven't done them the way we're going to do them. And almost to a person, the struggle to play number one melody in Barrett, starting with the very first note, they realize what they know ain't necessarily so. In other words, we're gonna we're going to approach it very differently. Are we going to release the E to give ourselves permission to go on to the eighth notes, or are we going to carry the E into the the uh, G? I mean, there are all kinds of possibilities, and we talk about what do you like best. I want to hear you play what you think you like best. I would love to hear you speak about being open to opportunities because it seems that you were extremely open to opportunities as they Mm -hmm. came. It didn't matter what instrument or what genre you had an opportunity and you were able to go for it. And I'd love to hear your thoughts more on that concept. Okay. I think one of the most limiting concepts for a young player is to say, I want to be the principal oboe of the Chicago symphony. Right. Because 9,999 times you're not going to make your goal. And so Mm -hmm. you're going to just reach disappointment. Whereas if you are equipping yourself, which is partly my job too as a teacher, equipping yourself to take advantage of opportunities as an oboist, and then other opportunities come up, it's not wasted time. The discipline in learning to play the oboe has been extraordinarily helpful. And I have doctors and lawyers and merchants and chiefs among my students who have gotten very far in their profession because of the skills learned from playing the oboe. On the other hand, 
if you're open to the opportunities that the oboe presents, it could be very different from that initial plan of this is the one job I want. And I think that that uh, some people, as they're in their their time at Eastman, get hooked on teaching. And they say, this is what I want to do. And I say, mm-hmm. that's just fine. And I will not take a DMA student, for example, who doesn't have a passion for teaching. A DMA, mm-hmm. for me, is not another degree to, to improve your oboe skills. Because as you may know, while you're doing your DMA, you don't get to play the oboe very much. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, or certainly at Eastman, there are so much uh, to do that that's not another step of just pra- learning the oboe. Whereas a person who's passionate about teaching, I love having those people get the degree that is often required to be a, in a university teaching situation. But there are so many other things that come along. I've had students who've gone in the recording business as recording engineers. I've had, I have a wonderful student who is now uh, an orchestra manager. I have a student who is a doctor, a student who's a lawyer, and they both, they all play the oboe really well, by the way. Um, I had I have a student who said I really want to play commercial music in other words studios stuff. And so I got a phone call from a person who's doing who was doing that and said I I kind of want to get out of the business now do you have anybody up there who would like to come to such and such a place and play in the recording studios? I said do I have somebody? I sent the guy there he's having the time of his life. He didn't know that he could realize that dream, but it just turned out that he was prepared for it. And it worked out that it, it panned out for him. Um, so he was not disappointed because he actually found a place where he could do what he had hoped to do. But I think there are so many uh, areas of the music profession that we could be, we could find satisfaction. Chamber music, uh, military ser- service bands are fantastic. I've got quite a few students doing those. They didn't know that they were going to do that when they were in school, but taking advantage of the audition and the opportunity, then they say, this is fantastic because I get to play, I'm paid to play, and I have freelance opportunities, and I can raise a family, and all of the things that go with that kind of a job. So I just think I don't think there are any limits. I've got one student who finished, and she said, "I want to, I want to be the marching band director at the high school." I said, "That's fine. If that, it just she found that she really enjoyed that, and it doesn't demean in any way her artistry or her ability to play the oboe well. And he, she can pass that on to her private students and to the concert band uh, oboists." That's really beautiful. I love that very much. I would love to know if you have any teaching philosophies or ideas or techniques that you picked up from Robert Bloom, or if you have any um, stories you would like to tell us about studying with Robert Bloom. I think the most important thing that I tell people about my studies with Robert Bloom is I had just gotten out of the Army. I had no idea how to really control a read. We spent one entire year starting and finishing tones. And we never stopped the tone. We always finished. And that discipline to taper, to finish, mm. uh, was the control thing that I didn't didn't have. And so he gave me a physical means to, to begin a tone and to finish a tone. And I literally spent the year doing that. I had one assignment in the orchestra, second oboe in a Haydn piano concerto. I had one first oboe assignment the entire year, which was the Mozart serenade in C minor. And in fact, my colleague there, Tom Fay, who's no longer with us, but Tom 
help me because I couldn't, I didn't have the endurance to get through it. So he played some of it for me because I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. The next summer I got married and that summer I started to feel courage and I started to be able to put things together. The following year I was the principal of the Oklahoma City Symphony. Wow. So it was the year of Control, a year of control. And I did get that year. I got to play in a quintet with Bill Douglas and Dick Stoltzman. And we just had a fantastic time learning Schoenberg Quintet and the Elliott Carter Etudes. And it was a fantastic time of growth for me. But it was and what I tell my students, if you don't have that time in your life where you're gaining control over the instrument, the technical aspects of the instrument uh, uh, and mostly the control over the tone, you can't go further. You can't, you can't go on. Mm-hmm. And it's easier for me at, as a, at that age. I was, I don't know, 24, 25, where I knew if, if I didn't do that, I wasn't going to make it. I think it's tough for a 17 or 18 year old um, to say, okay, I'm just going to spend a year getting control. Right. But we spend a lot of time with that in the lesson because if I hear a note that and that a uh, rectangle, I call them rectangles, the note that goes dot, I just we just <laughs> stop and I say we're not going to do that. We are not going to let one note be unattended, uh, and it's being picky, but it's not picky to to make them feel bad. Once they realize they can do this and it becomes second nature, they love it. And I do that. I coach the freshmen in trios, and we deal with all those artistic issues from the get-go, and they love it because they realize, oh, yes, this is music. We're not playing the oboe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I really think it, it, it you can't start that early enough. I mean, it can be any time from the very beginning. That we play, we play notes. We don't play fingerings. Mm-hmm. We play uh, we play a, a tone that has a pitch, not a fingering. When in doubt, play beautifully, right? That's right. Oh, yes. But there are times <laughs> when you don't, and then you're not in doubt. You just play the way you're supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> but I found that the students, I think that's why I'm passionate about teaching, and I'll keep teaching forever, because the students buy it, because it, it, it's not always a new concept to them, but the, when they hear in the, in the freshman, for example, while three of them are playing, two of them are listening, if they hear the results, their eyes just, you know, their faces light up. They say, oh, my gosh, that sounds really good. I said, yeah, that's kind of what we're after. <laughs> you know, that's that's kind of our goal. And I will. I never allow tuning. We have to play in tune, but we deal with pitch problems every single you know, every moment we're dealing with the pitch problems, but they have to come to rehearsal knowing that they're going to play at a certain pitch level, and that's their work in the practice room and with the read, with the with the tuner. But right. I don't allow an A to be given in the studio unless it's a string player. And it's amazing how when they come expecting to play to be able to play in tune with, and that's the secret, to play in tune with their colleagues, they come with a different attitude. Mm-hmm. And then they expect to, to if, if they're struggling, we deal with it, obviously. But, but they expect that they have to participate in that good intonation. And it's their job to help the other people in their group sound better. Mm-hmm. And it works. I, 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 I mean, all I can say is it works. 
Similar to what we did with your educational journey, could you walk us through embarking on your professional journey as an oboist and specifically talking to us about your time in the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra and how you found your way to the Eastman School of Music? Okay. After I was in Oklahoma City three years, I was getting very tight and I realized that I was struggling with my playing. The conductor was very happy because I did the job. And I love my colleagues there, but I was feeling trapped by physical struggles with playing. And I had met at that time Henry Schumann, who was a very who who was one of my most important mentors. And he, we talked about this, and he suggested that I come back to the New York area, and we could play together, and we could he could work with me on this. But in the meantime, I was accepted back at Yale, so then I just did that. I came back to Yale, and I played with Henry in the uh, in New York just uh, occasionally, and still had was greatly influenced by him. But when I played for Bloom, at first place, he said, why did you leave the orchestra? You'll probably never get another job. And I said, I, I feel I'm in trouble. So I played for him, and he said, you are. He said, the problem is your reeds are too wild, and you're controlling everything in your throat, and you're not using your air. Ah. Oh, okay. So we completely worked on the balance, just changing the balances so that I could be freer playing the air to the reed and, and having a better reed and more and then I could control the reed and not not tightening in my chest, the upper chest, which I felt very tight and that just wasn't working, obviously. And so um I spent that year just freelancing and just getting ready for auditions. And I basically memorized I can't memorize a tuning A, you know, I have no, no <laughs> But I worked on the audition material for St. Paul, and Henry was the one who encouraged me to audition for that job because he had played with them. And then I actually went out there and won the job. I mean, I actually survived La Scala de Seda and all these extra. And I, they actually asked me to take the job. I was shocked. But it was the ideal job because I felt very comfortable there. And it, we did a lot of educational services, but the orchestra was – uh, looking for a conductor, so the orchestra was without an identity really at that time. Then the second year we hired Dennis Davies, and the orchestra started to take on a character, and I felt very much a part of that, and I loved it. I just really enjoyed that. And several years later, then Zuckerman came, and and uh, and also enhanced the orchestra's uh, visibility and its its artistic endeavors. Uh, after 11 years, I could have stayed there forever, but I was at I was teaching at Aspen, and I met two people who were at Eastman, and they said, "Mr. Kilmer, you have to come to uh, Eastman." I said, "No, no, that's a retirement job." I said, "They said, no, no, we we need Mr. Sprinkles retiring. You've got to come to Eastman." I said, "Okay, I'll throw in my hat." So I sent a I sent a little cassette tape with the good and the bad and the ugly, everything, hmm. and they invited me to come and do a class, and then. I was one of three finalists, and they offered the job to one of the other three finalists. So I made my peace with St. Paul and said, well, someone else is going to take the job, but that person did not take the job. So I ended up taking the job and suffering the first year. What have I done? I've taken my wife away from her freelancing. I've taken the kids away from their grade schools. What have I done? 
and then after about the oh I'd say into the second year I was starting to actually feel that I could do this you know but I was learning every single lesson and so um, then there was a time when I was getting older I thought I was getting older and and I thought maybe it would be nice to maybe retire can't imagine that now but I, I had a retirement party but then I get I Gave that up. And then uh, when Ronnie Roseman passed away, I was invited to come to Yale and teach and uh, also play in the New York Quintet. And like a crazy man, I did all three. I did full time at Eastman. I drove over on the weekend, six and a half hours each way to New Haven, taught all day Saturday, Sunday morning, and came back. And then once a month, coached at Juilliard and went on three tours with the New York Quintet. Now, that was crazy. So, I gave up the New York Woodman Quintet after one year and then kept Yale five more years. And after a while, my wife and I both decided, you know, this is crazy. <laughs> so I, I uh, retired, so to speak, from Yale, and I will teach at Eastman now, uh, I hope, till I'm 100. You mentioned that Robert Bloom helped you rebalance your support, your air, your reads, what advice can you give all the reed makers out there? The reed has to work. <laughs> <laughs> the reed has to enable you to play, not disable you. The reed, if you go for sound, I, I'm going to go back to that sound word. Mm -hmm. If you go back and you're making a reed because it sounds good, but you can't play it, it's useless. You have to have access. I love that word. You have to have access. But there's a benevolent, benevolent resistance in the way the tip gets into the heart that allows for vibrations to get through the reed, but doesn't let them go so quickly that you have to grab onto the reed to keep it from splattering. Right. So there's a benevolent uh, balance there that is slightly different for everyone except for this one important thing. The tip of the reed still has to be the thinnest part of the reed. And in every reed style, short scrape, long scrape, medium scrape, every that's the that's the cardinal rule now um i think my corners and my very tip across the end are, are my thin parts um i don't want to scoop out in the middle of the tip but i but i go straight across and, and find that it adds depth to my reeds but it's barely at the tip and i'm sloping i'm and my cut in is a slope a, a rather you know 45 degree aim slope not deep deep enough but if it goes too deep it's like a square root you know we can't mm -hmm. have that where mm -hmm. it's thin and then thick so right, i go right. i cut in with a de defined cut in definition and then slope to the end particularly toward the corners that's kind of and i think whatever i do in the back is window dressing if you know beyond making that really good tip and i will use the back and the, and sometimes the heart uh, to balance that but if the tip isn't good, the rest of the read, you can't make it up for, in other areas very well. If you make that the very thin tip and the very thick heart with no gradation, then it, only the tip is vibrating, right? That's right. And you have yeah. nothing. You can't, you can't, it won't function. So right. what I do, I start about where I'm going to make the tip or maybe slightly behind and I, I just make a slope. So this is my read, read, read style in in a, in a few words. I think uh, I make a slope, basically thinking left side, right side, to the corners. Then I draw a straight line, the back up to where I started that slope. 
straight line, just heart and back is all one thing, just straight line. On And I'm getting close to an imaginary spine and trying to keep the rails. I don't dig out the spine, but I don't. I don't try to keep a wedge of cane there. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's then that's my basic start. Then I clip. Then I start my tip at 66 millimeters from the from the bottom, and probably the middle of that heart would be 67 to start with. And I really work to get the cut in and then the slope out to the end. And if I don't get it across the end at that point, it's fine because I can always come back and take care of that. But I've got to get cane out in a gradual way. It could be a very slight graduation, but gradual slope out to the end. And then the heart's already been scraped because I've gone through the bark with the back and the heart. Then I'll do the channels. I call them channels. People call them windows. I call them channels. Then I take the channels to homogenize. It's strictly – that's my purpose, is to collapse and homogenize the tone. Mm-hmm. And then I always come back and refine the tip some more. And the next day I come back and I refine the tip some more. And the next day I come back and refine the tip some more. Uh-huh. But the reeds will work right away. They'll work, but they're not ready for public consumption. <laughs> Can you tell our listeners about what I perceive as unique uh, reed-making habits – your daily read in the morning? Uh, well, um, actually, now I had a terrible accident this summer. So my hands, I can't play. Oh. And so I broke a finger and my hand oh, is still, um, you know, I'm still doing hand therapy. And it'll be about a year, I think, before I'll be able to play. But I can still make a read. Ooh. So I go in during the time I was playing at school and in St. Paul, I made, I made three reads every day. When I was in St. Paul, I'd get up in the morning and make three reads and go to rehearsal. And it was just a habit. And it takes me a couple of minutes to make a read. So it wasn't like I was spending hours at all. The refining would take uh, several days, but the Mm -hmm. actual making a read takes me no time. I mean, when I was in college, in three hours, I could wind 100 reads and scrape scrape them in three hours. (laughs) I'd wind 100 reads in one hour and scrape 100 reads in two hours. And I made 22 and a half cents a read. And I put myself through college with that. So I have no fear of read. <laughs> Those are a, a long time ago. <laughs> Times have changed. <laughs> but it, it gave me, it, it removed any fear of making mm, reads. Mm-hmm. And I think I developed a knife technique, which I think I still use to this day because I use my knife quite angled instead of uh, straight up and down. I don't dig in and out. I, I angle and slope. And my students look at me, and Mr. Frankel, actually, when I first came to Eastman, he said, you whittle, you don't scrape. <laughs> but anyway, it works, you know, and it's very, it's very quick, and it puts a surface on the reed rather than uh, holes and digging. You know, it's a surface, more of a surface. But uh, that now that I'm not playing, in fact, I played I thought what I thought was going to be my last performance this past spring. I said, I don't think I'll ever play again in public because I'm starting to feel the, you know, the, what goes along with uh, getting to be, uh, what do we call us? An octogenarian? Is that what I am? Mm-hmm. 80 years old. <laughs> and so I thought, well, eyes, fingers, brain, all of this, you know, so, but now that I can't play, I want to play. Mm. So I come in now and make reads, but it's, I need to do that to help the students anyway, but now I'm going in every day and making reads. I go in in the morning and work on reads. I love it. But and uh, the way I sharpen my knife, I, it takes me no no time to make a read. 
You have a reputation for being a master pedagogue, and your students are some of the most successful in the country. And when we started this conversation, you were telling us how you learn from every lesson that you teach. And so I would love to hear um, some of the lessons that your students have taught you, and if you have any um, special memories as a teacher that you'd like to share with us. I I think the biggest mistake I made was the biggest lesson then, was when I came to Eastman, I wanted to get everybody sound better. You know, that's always, oh, I was a sound junkie. And I said, people sound too thin to me. Let's get their sounds built up. So we were working with reeds we couldn't play. And everybody all of a sudden played out of tune. They struggled. And I said, what am I doing? You know, and that was the biggest lesson was to learn to make a read that that we have access to that you can actually play. So instead of changing people the day they walk into the studio, what I do is let them evolve. We evolve and we notice a struggle and we say, okay, let's work on the read in this way because I think that I have the feeling you're making the read respond at the back. I feel like the tone is hollow because you haven't put the response at the tip of the reed. And I, I don't do that by looking at the reed and by trying the reed. I look at, I do that by I'm reacting to what I'm hearing them do. Mm-hmm. And then we try to solve that as we go along. But the biggest mistakes I have made is not waiting and being patient to under, truly understand what the problems of the students are. I think that I was anxious to impose solutions before I really knew what the problems were. Mm. And that's what I think I've learned over these. This is my 38th year. So I'm going to keep doing it until I figure it out. <laughs> I don't know if I ever will. But I do think that, that when I hear, I'm, um, I let them know immediately. No, that's not that. We're not getting what we're looking for here. Yes, that was terrific. Can you remember that? Let's try that again because that was so wonderful. The the way you you uh, lifted the pressure off the bow. I use the bow a lot. We 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 bow everything. You know, I'm always talking about the pressure and the speed of the bow as it uh, relates to air. And if they do a beautiful phrase, a beautiful turn of a phrase, uh, I just get all goosebumps, you know, and I tell them, I said, let's keep that as part of your repertoire, as your experience. You don't want to forget that because I think sometimes people just blow and move their fingers and they think that's oboe playing, that's music. It doesn't work that way. When we published that we were going to interview you on our social media, we did a call for questions and we got a really interesting question from someone you might know named Alex Klein. Yes. (laughs) Um, And his question is when he was a student at Aspen in the 1980s, he heard you tell a riddle which is about communication and charisma, but he's always wondered if he got it right. So he wants to ask uh, right now. Um, it was about when you were a soloist at Carnegie Hall with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra Bach Double Concerto with Zuckerman, and the concert went beautifully, and the audience loved it. And then you told about when Heinz Holliger was the soloist on the same piece, also with St. Paul Chamber Orchestra and Zuckerman, and that upon finishing the piece, the audience stood on its feet, and you asked the students to explain, and that it wasn't about Holliger's name recognition. Would you care to explain to us once more that important point you made with your personal experience? 
Wow. I think that I was still probably playing the oboe more than the music. Ah. I was playing fine, but Hans Holliger was absolutely uh, not a sound junkie. We we loved him in there in St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. He just played. It was when Heinz Holliger played. It was Heinz Holliger expressing his thoughts. When I played, I played the oboe reasonably well. I think that's the difference. I think that I was trying to play well and properly so that I would not be criticized for my tone or my technique or my style or my phrasing. And I think Heinz Holliker just played and he played mm. the music. He went, he went so much further. And I, I feel that way about, you know, my recording, which I think is okay. But, but compared with what a person like that can exhibit, we judge people. Uh, the audience is hearing just the, the result of his, personality. Mm. Oboe player, I tell people, if an oboe player comes up to you and they says, oh, you sounded great, take more cane off your reed. If a violinist comes up to you and says, you sounded beautiful, believe it. Mm. There's a big difference. Yes. Big difference. As you reflect on your performance career, are there any special favorite memories that stick out in your mind that you'd love to tell us about? Yes. Um, I recall so many times with the with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra in the Baroque series, and we did Tom Temple, who's a phenomenal colleague, uh, and I would play the Albignoni Double Concerto, and that was always a thrill because it was never the same. So that was always fun. Also in St. Paul, uh, the chance to play the Schoenberg Chamber Symphony, the chance to play the Tyson Street Adagio for Oboe and Strings, uh, and the Brahms Serenade Number no. 2. These are the performances that I still remember, and I have some of them recorded. I mean, there I have tapes of the performances, and I still listen to that and say, oh, my gosh, how can I play like that? How can I do that? I need to find out how to do that again. You know, there just there's a memory of something that super that goes beyond the oboe. Magic. Yes, it's like in the zone. They they talk about in the zone. You know, I remember a, a handle water music like that. That I was in the zone, and you just forget everything except just playing the music. And I love being in that in that zone in that place. We always love to ask what your advice is for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours. And I'm really interested in hearing your answer because you've had such a unique and varied career. I can't wait. Well, <laughs> just the fact that you say a career like yours, I say, no, what path to your interests and to your sensibilities and to, to your intelligence and musical intelligence and your ambitions, what path will you be able to follow? And I think you said it way back, taking advantage of opportunities. Mm. I don't think anyone could duplicate my crazy path, but I think duplicating the, uh, taking advantage of opportunities, yes, that's the key. And being prepared, I tell my students who say, well, I don't really want to play in an orchestra. I say, that's fine. But think of what preparing excerpts, the kind of discipline that is required to right. play something absolutely perfectly to your mind as well as you can play. Think of what that does for you, no matter what you're going to do in, in life. 
very few people reach that level of detail and of, of uh, discipline. And I think it's extraordinary that we have that opportunity, regardless of how we're going to use that skill. Mr. Kilmer, thank you so much for talking with us. This has been just a really inspiring and invigorating way to spend an hour. And I'm just so grateful that you, you know, took the time out of your busy schedule to come on Double Read Dish. Well, it's been my pleasure. And I, I wish both of you well. I think this is a great project. And I'm, I'm sorry that I was hesitant about it because I was really nervous about it. <laughs> that's okay. You know and, I was just going to keep asking you until you said that's yes. Right, that's right. <laughs> and you know that to this day, I, I still am nervous when I play. And I tell my students, we don't need to medicate. We don't need to do anything but just learn to live with your, your uh, anxiousness because it means you really care. And we, we are vulnerable people, and that's just fine. And I don't mind being vulnerable, and I don't mind seeing vulnerability and hearing vulnerability in performances. That's perfect. Thank you so, so much. We appreciate it so much. As always, you can find us on all of the social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you can listen to us anywhere you get your podcasts, including SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, YouTube, you name it, we are there. Galit, who's coming up on the next episode? Our next episode features a fantastic interview with Judith Farmer from the University of Southern California. Becky, let's end this nerd parade. Go make reads.